Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, a New York judge expanding a gag order to include Donald Trump's attorneys, now warning them to stop talking about court staff as a, quote, fired up former president is set to take the stand on Monday. Plus, Israel rejecting new U.S. calls for a humanitarian pause in Gaza, then taking responsibility for a deadly strike outside the largest hospital there. And CNN going one-on-one with indicted Congressman George Santos. His response after surviving a second attempt to expel him from Congress. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, there is high drama in a New York courtroom just before Donald Trump is set to take the stand on Monday. The former president is preparing to testify before the judge who has already found him liable for fraud in the civil trial that is threatening his entire empire and really his whole identity. Trump is, quote, fired up ahead of that testimony. That's according to his son, Eric Trump, who I should note also just wrapped up his own testimony after his brother, Donald Trump Jr., was also forced to testify this week. Technically, this will be Trump's second time going on the stand here in New York, and it's going to be a highly anticipated moment. There are a lot of legal issues surrounding Trump. Of course, it's easy to get them all confused. But remember that this is the same judge who told Trump that he was not, quote, credible after he was on the witness stand for about three minutes and then fined him $10,000. The judge said that was because Trump violated his gag order that barred him from speaking about court staff. He's been criticizing one clerk in particular. And now there's another chapter in that so- chapter in that saga. That limited gag order has now expanded to include Trump's own lawyers, Christopher Kyes, Clifford Robert, and Alina Haba. All three are now banned from making statements about confidential communications between the judge and his staff. At the heart of this is that same clerk. Judge Engeron today admonished those three attorneys, saying that they, and I'm quoting the judge now, made repeated inappropriate remarks about my principal law clerk, falsely accusing her of bias against them. And this gag order is widening. Another gag order in Washington, that's in that federal election interference case there, has just now been temporarily frozen tonight for the former president. More on what that means in a moment, but I'm joined now by the former Superior Court Judge, LaDoris Hazard-Cortell. And Judge, I'm so glad you're here tonight because I'd love for you to just start by explaining how unusual is it for a gag order to be expanded to include the attorneys? Uh, Well, Caitlin, I I wouldn't characterize it as a gag order at all. I'd categorize it as the judge giving a reminder to the lawyers in the courtroom to abide by courtroom protocol. Mature adults do not call out, name call, say lies about the judge's staff. Uh, I, I was on the bench for nearly 20 years and presided over hearings and motions and trials, thousands of them, and never once did I ever have a lawyer call out my staff. 
And I'm especially concerned about the lawyers because every person, before they become a lawyer, has to take a bar exam and pass it. And part of the bar exam is the professional responsibility section, which deals with ethics and which deals with conduct of an attorney uh, in the courtroom and outside of the courtroom. So when a lawyer does this, as in this case, this lawyer needs to have a refresher course on that. Uh, so the, the thing that, that comes up to me, though, is why would a lawyer do this and so aggravate a judge where the judge is the sole decider of the Trump's fate and in the fate of the alleged empire. Uh, and all I can come up with is that it is a strategy. It is a strategy that they're using when they know they're losing and losing badly, when they're sink, their ship is sinking. Uh, so they need to disrupt. They need to find a way that this trial can either be interrupted or can be reversed on appeal. And maybe that's by so aggravating and irritating the judge that the judge loses it and shows bias. Well, oh, that's interesting. So you think they're trying to provoke him, basically? A absolutely. There is no other rational reason uh, for them to do this. And so the judge could, for example, start saying things or even using body motions that show the irritation and the bias that he's building against the other side. And that is, can be sufficient for a reversible error. Uh, but I do believe this judge, because he's been on the bench a long time and has likely had lawyers and litigants in his courtroom that have been obstreperous and have been juvenile or immature, uh, and he's apparently found a way uh, to deal with them. So I don't think this strategy is going to work for them. Trial judges, basically, the good ones, basically have a mantra that they follow, and it is uh, be short, long of fuse and thick of skin. And I think this judge is following that mantra. Long of fuse and thick of skin. I mean, if you looked at what was happening today, it was just remarkable because what they were so upset about and what they were complaining about was the judge talking to his clerk. They were passing notes to one another on the bench. But, I mean... Your judge, is any of that unusual for a judge to be communicating with their principal clerk who's seated right next to them? Right. So tr trial lawyers, um, excuse me, trial judges, uh, many of them, and including me, had um, law clerks. And these are lawyers. They're very, very good lawyers. That's why they are there assisting a judge. And their, their role is to uh, research cases, to advise, give opinions regarding uh, there are various legal issues that come up. So is it unusual for a judge to have a law clerk that is giving information to the judge when the judge requests it? Absolutely not. Uh, these are hardworking lawyers. And actually, to get to this position, uh, you have to be highly qualified to even be there. So no, there's nothing unusual about it. And law clerks are an important part of the life of a trial court judge. And I should note, I mean, the judge, what's clearly bothering him is that he's worried about the safety of his clerk and the other staff. He said that they've been inundated with threats since all of this trial, this trial began. But I do want to ask you, Judge, before we let you go about the other gag order related to the former president tonight. And that's because a federal appeals court has temporarily frozen that one in Washington, D.C., which essentially means, I believe, until the oral, oral arguments and tell me if, if I'm wrong, that Trump is now free to criticize potential witnesses in this case. That's right. So with the appellate court saying we're going to just stay that gag order that Judge Chutkin issued, they're basically saying there is no gag order. 
And, and what the judge issued there is more of a gag order in that he's saying you cannot, she is saying you cannot talk about uh, or say things about witnesses because we know when Trump says things, it's dog whistle, not very well disguised to his followers to go after these people. Uh, so I, I'm really bothered by the fact that there is a stay that was issued. But when it is issued, it means there is no gag order. He is free to continue doing what he was doing before then, which is to call out people, call names out, and uh, I believe endanger the lives of these people that he is talking about. Yeah. Mark Meadows, Bill Barr. I mean, you just see it regularly on yes. Truth Social. We'll see what happens in those oral arguments. Judge Ladoris Hazard Cordell, as always, thank you. Sure. The former president is set to follow his two oldest, his two adult sons and take the stand here in New York on Monday. For more on what that could look like, here with me is former senior investigative counsel for the January 6th Select Committee, Tamadaya Oganga-Williams. And uh, I mean, so all of this drama that happened today kind of overshadowed Eric Trump's testimony actually happening in court today. But I was so interested by it because he basically was accusing the attorney general of using Eric Trump and his siblings as collateral damage, damage trying to sensationalize the case. But it really does matter what his role was in the Trump war, because in a, in a deposition, Trump said, you know, he was much more involved than Trump personally was. I mean, how does that square with what Eric Trump testified today? Well, I think what we've seen is, is the blame game. We've seen it with Don Jr., Eric Jr., and we've seen it in the, in the deposition testimony of the former president. Everyone is pointing at someone else. Everyone's saying, yeah, these may be false, these statements about the, the value of properties and whatnot, but it wasn't me. So when the former president is saying it's his sons, his sons are saying it was the accountants, and the judge is going to have to parse out, are any of them credible, or is it basically everyone's going down together? That's going to be up to the judge to decide. Can you explain to those of us who are not maybe super familiar with why this would be happening, why it was... Donald Trump Jr., then Eric Trump, then Donald Trump is testifying on Monday, but his daughter, Ivanka Trump, is not. Why wouldn't they save Donald Trump for last, basically? Well, I think part of that is Ivanka Trump was challenging whether or not she would testify. She raised an objection and actually be, citing her young children that was why she would be unable to get away. It would be a hardship. So that's why she may be out of order here as opposed to the natural buildup. Why you would have these folks testify, I mean, this case is really about the intent behind the fraud. As you know, uh, the judge has already found this, what's called a summary judgment motion, which is basically a finding before trial that there was fraud, repeated fraud, based on the documents. Now the question is, was there intent behind the fraud with these additional causes of action? Did Don Jr., did Eric, did Eric and did the former president intend to defraud individuals, whether it came down to loans or the like? And that's what really this is about here. All these folks are on the stand also because it's a civil case. If this were a criminal case, you couldn't force the defendants to get on the stand. Here in a civil case where unless they plead the fifth, there's not criminal exposure, you can get them all on the stand. And that's why they're all there now. Well, and Donald Trump, I mean, himself is going on Monday. I don't think he's he, he was on the witness stand for three yeah. minutes, as I mentioned here, but he hasn't been on the witness stand in over a decade. I mean, what do you think that's going to his son's claiming he's fired up but. Do you think he'll actually be fired up when he's under oath and on the witness stand? Well, we've seen two testifying Donald Trumps in the past. And by the, oh, I say public Donald Trumps. We've seen the Donald Trump of the rallies, who is boisterous, who is offensive, who is aggressive. And then we've seen a Donald Trump in deposition testimony, who is a little bit actually more controlled about his words, 
who gets a little slightly more soft-spoken. I don't know which Trump we're going to see. I think that depends in part on their strategy. If they think that all is lost with the judge, because again, this is a judge trial, not a jury trial. So only one person deciding the president's fate. If they think all is lost, they may decide to go in a more aggressive, public-facing strategy where it's not about what's happening with the verdict, but they're trying to either elicit a response from the judge, they're playing to the media, they're playing to the base, they're looking for political backlash, something else besides the merits. I have to ask you about something else that happened today, which kind of dumbfounded a lot of people. Mark Meadows obviously wrote a book, Trump's former chief of staff. Now the publisher of that book is suing him, accusing him of violating the terms of their agreement, because in the book, he obviously includes false statements about the 2020 election. I'm confused why this is happening now. I mean, part of the one chapter opens with a sentence in all caps, I knew he didn't lose. We knew that this was out there. They obviously knew that he was going to make these claims in this book. Why are they suing him now? And I mean, do they have an argument? Well, I think what's odd about this lawsuit is that it's based on public reporting that Mark Meadows has taken a different posture in private with the special counsel. It's not based on anything that this public can actually prove yet. But I think, frankly, it's the, the, you know, it's everything coming home to roost for both sides. Mark Meadows' lies were clear when this book was written and published, and the publisher nonetheless decided they were going forward with it. Mark Meadows now is having to face up to the lies that he told, meaning he's got to decide in responding to this lawsuit, is he going to say, I was lying in the book, or now I'm lying to Jack Smith and what he's told, presumably under oath, that the reporting is right. So I think, frankly, you have a publisher who was willing to accept lies up front, and you had a, a writer in, in, in Mark Meadows who was willing to tell those lies, and they're both now, you know, paying the consequences. Tim Adayo, Ganga Williams, luckily we have you here to try to sort it all out. <laughs> Thank you. From Donald Trump to George Santos, who spoke to CNN exclusively tonight about his plan to run again in 2024 and obviously pressed on the lies about his biography. You acknowledge, though, fabricating large portions of your life. So why did that happen? People want to know why. Manu, Manu, we've gone through this. Up next, though, Israel is firmly defending a deadly strike on an ambulance outside of the largest hospital in Gaza City. They're also saying no ceasefire until all the hostages are released. We'll speak to a member of Congress calling for a ceasefire. Also, the only person who voted against going to war in Afghanistan and Iraq after 9-11. That's in a moment. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Tonight, Israel is defending itself while also claiming responsibility for a deadly strike on an ambulance outside of the largest hospital in Gaza City. I want you to know that some of the images that you're about to see are disturbing. But this is the scene where witnesses say dozens of people were killed and injured outside the Al-Shifa hospital. It's the largest medical facility there. We've spoken to doctors who are operating inside of that hospital on this show. The aftermath is grim and chaotic. But Israeli officials are claiming that those ambulances, like the one that was hit today, are being used to transfer, to transfer weapons and Hamas fighters. They've also accused Hamas of having a command and control center under the hospital. Of course, Palestinians have said that is not true. The timing here, though, is notable because this strike came not long after Secretary of State Antony Blinken was on the ground in Israel for about 10 hours, pressing the government there to do more to protect civilians in Gaza. Hamas doesn't care one second or one iota for the welfare, for the well-being of the Palestinian people. But civilians should not suffer the consequences for its inhumanity and its brutality. We've provided Israel advice that only the best of friends can offer on how to minimize civilian deaths while still achieving its objectives of finding and finishing Hamas terrorists and their infrastructure of violence. Jeremy Diamond is in Ashkelon, Israel, with the latest on that strike that happened in Gaza earlier today. Well, Caitlin, tonight the Israeli military is confirming that it did carry out a strike on an ambulance in Gaza City. Now, this ambulance was part of a convoy uh, of ambulances traveling outside Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. The Israeli military says that Hamas militants were inside this ambulance and that they were killed in this strike. But Palestinian health authorities paint a very different picture. They say that this convoy of ambulances was carrying injured Palestinians being evacuated via that Rafah crossing with Egypt, where we know that several uh, Palestinians, injured Palestinians, have been allowed to leave. Now, the Israeli military says that Hamas has used ambulances in the past to carry not only Hamas militants, but also weapons. And they've also pointed to Al-Shifa Hospital, saying that Hamas operates an underground command and control center beneath that hospital. It has not provided evidence that we can verify, though, uh, to back up those claims. But Palestinian health authorities say that 15 people were killed in this strike, 50 others were wounded. And this is, of course, raising more questions about Israel's military tactics in these three and a half, nearly four weeks of war uh, that have happened thus far. This strike comes just days after Israel targeted that densely populated Jabalia refugee camp, saying that there was also an underground Hamas command and control center beneath residential buildings there. Uh, but uh, international law experts raising questions about whether these strikes are appropriate and whether they amount to war crimes. Now, meanwhile, amid all of this, Caitlin, uh, Hamas militants continue to target Israeli cities and towns with rockets. They are firing them indiscriminately, targeting civilian areas. And earlier today, uh, my team was near where one of those rockets made it through that Iron Dome missile defense system, hitting about 100 meters away from where many journalists were posted in Sterot to watch the activity happening inside of Gaza. I want you to listen to the power of those rockets coming in. Ooh. 
and one of those two rockets actually landed in the courtyard of a kindergarten in Sterot. Of course, there were no children at the time. The school is not in session in Sterot. Uh, but uh, this just serves as a powerful reminder, of course, as you look at some of the damage of these vehicles in the area and that school, that while the Iron Dome missile defense system intercepts the overwhelming majority of these rockets fired by Hamas, some of them still make it through. Caitlin? Jeremy Diamond, thank you for that report. More tonight, I want to bring in Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California, who is perhaps most notably remembered for her calls for restraint after 9-11. At the time, she was the sole member of Congress in either chamber to oppose the 2001 authorization of force, military force, used to authorize the U.S. invasion into Afghanistan and Iraq, currently running for Dianne Feinstein's former Senate seat in California. And thank you, Congresswoman, for joining me tonight. I'm really glad that you're here. Obviously, uh, on this strike, Israel is confirming that it hit an ambulance tonight in Gaza, claiming it was being used by Hamas after that request by Secretary Blinken, saying that Israel needs to try to protect Palestinian civilians. What's your reaction to that? Caitlin, thank you for, for inviting me to be with you. First of all, I have called for a ceasefire. And this should not be mistaken for the lack of support for uh, and protection and safety for Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, and I'm calling for the end of all hostilities. And this means also Hamas. It means uh, Islamic, the Islamic Jihad. It means Hezbollah, all of, of uh, the hostilities needs to cease because a couple of things are happening. First of all, we see now probably over 9,000 civilians that have been killed, 3,500 children. Uh, the cessation of, of violence and hostilities is crucial to the release of hostages. It's crucial to making sure that uh, a regional war does not erupt. We know that that's on the brink. We're on the brink. So we've got to have a ceasefire and have a ceasefire immediately. You called for that ceasefire right after the attack by Hamas on Israel. You know, and the White House at the time said that calls for a ceasefire were repugnant and disgraceful. Now the White House is asking for a humanitarian pause. Does that go far enough in your view? It does not go far enough in my view because we have, a, have to have a cessation of all hostilities and a ceasefire. Otherwise, we're going to possibly end up losing the support of Arab states. The only way that we're going to see peace and security and justice for the Israelis and the Palestinian people is through a political and diplomatic solution. You cannot do that in the midst of a war. And so we have to not have a, a pause, I don't believe, because what happens after a pause? Yes, we must deliver the humanitarian aid, but after the humanitarian aid is delivered, then bombs and the hostilities will, will uh, begin again. And so I believe, what about yes, Congresswoman the security though, of Israel. What about Israeli officials on, that, I, that I've talked to about these calls for a ceasefire? They say that just gives Hamas time to regroup. We can't do a ceasefire. That's what their argument is. What I say is, and uh, Mr. Pape, who was a, uh, an advisor to President Bush, no progressive. Uh, his point was that the longer uh, this takes place, the longer uh, the hostilities occur and the longer this war takes place, you're going to have more violence. You're going to have more Palestinians 
relating to Hamas, and we're going to create another cycle of terrorists and violence. And so we've got to stop this from what this happens, because we know what is taking place now. We know the anger and the hostilities, and we know that uh, this is not going to end well unless we call for a ceasefire and begin a diplomatic and peaceful uh, pathway to security and peace and security for I'll the Palestinians note, and the Israelis. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said people who are calling for a ceasefire, they don't understand Hamas, was the way she framed it. But I do also want to ask you, Congresswoman, about your Democratic colleague, uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who is the only Palestinian American in Congress. Tonight, she put out a new video accusing President Biden of supporting, I'm quoting from the video now, the genocide of the Palestinian people. Do you agree with that sentiment? I have not seen the video, and I know Congresswoman uh, Tlaib, uh, her grandmother and her family, uh, they are in Ramallah. And uh, I understand the personal aspects of this and the trauma and the fear that she has. And so every member has their own points of views. Every member understands what is important and what believes will lead to a path to peace. I have stated this over and over and over again, that even though those uh, in Israel and in Palestine, many do not support a two-state solution. It is the policy of the Biden administration to support a two-state solution. And I think we need to look at beyond these uh, this war and these hostilities, what next? What will be uh, the United States' role in trying but to bring you, some, some permanency Biden, to peace and security? Do you think President Biden is supporting the genocide of the Palestinian people. Those are harsh words from a Democrat for a Democratic president. Do you support that? First, let me say, I think the president uh, needs to speak very clearly about a ceasefire. That's my position with regard to the administration, recognizing that we support Israel's security, we support their rights to defend themselves, and in fact, we know that uh, Hamas is a terrorist organization, and we know that they do, Hamas does not reflect the majority of the Palestinian people. And so the president is trying to thread that needle, but I hope that he calls for a ceasefire within the context of supporting Israel and its security. Okay, but you're not going to say whether you agree with Congresswoman Tlaib's comments that he's supporting the genocide of the Palestinian people. What I am saying is I will tell you what I say, and Congresswoman Tlaib, uh, once again, you've got to understand Congresswoman Tlaib's points of views and her personal um, history with uh, her family and her grandmother in, in Ramallah, and also understand that there are many of us who have points of views, but we all come together when we know that we want to stop this killing of civilians and children and women and want to call, and we are calling for a ceasefire. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. We're also learning tonight about how U.S. officials are anticipating a new phase of Israel's war against Hamas in the coming days. The question is, what does that shift look like? We'll talk about that next. Tonight, U.S. officials tell CNN that they are anticipating a new phase of Israel's war with Hamas in the coming days, one that we are beginning to see in a video like this one. Israeli forces marching through the streets, dug in on the ground inside Gaza. Tanks, heavy equipment moving through the streets. It's a sign that this phase of the battle is in full swing. At the same time, aerial strikes have continued to rain down, both from fighter jets overhead and ships off the coast. 
On the other end of these strikes, like this one, are scenes like this, a strike on the al-Maghazi refugee camp in Gaza. For more on these ground movements and what is potentially to come, I want to bring in CNN military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. And Colonel Layton, I'm so glad you're here tonight. As we talk about, from a military perspective, what they're actually doing on the ground, what do we expect this new phase uh, of Israel's efforts to look like? Well, Caitlin, good evening. It's good to be with you. The, uh, the big thing here to note is that when they first started the air campaign, which was really the first phase of all of, this, all of these operations, they really concentrated their bombing runs in the north with a little bit of activity in the south. So this was mainly to soften up everything uh, that was uh, going to be happening next. And that next phase, which we're basically finishing right now, it looks like, is for the Israeli forces to move into the northern and northeastern parts and then also go into the central parts. So we're talking Gaza City here. Uh, they say they've surrounded Gaza City, the Israelis have. And the idea is to move all these forces forward in a way that will encircle the Hamas fighters. So this is where they're at now. At the moment, it's kind of a combination between the air campaign and the ground campaign. But what you saw earlier in those videos is what the next phase is going to look like and it's going to be a combination of these things plus a bit of a more concentrated act area of activity here in the north and then there's going also going to be some movement uh, down in the central part and potentially moving down to the south but basically what they've done is they've cut the country or the the territory in two and they're concentrating their military operations right here in the north Okay, so if the ground campaign is ramping up, does that mean that air campaign, the assaults that we've been seeing from the skies, uh, I mean, last night Gaza was completely lit up, does that mean that that decreases or do both happen at the same time? Is that likely? Either one is possible. What, can, what will probably happen is there'll be a combination of both and they'll determine the level of effort between the two. I, but one thing that they have to be very careful of, Caitlin, is to make sure that the ground forces don't conflict with what the air forces are doing. So they have to make sure that they don't have what they call fratricide, which means killing your own in a case like this. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to deconflict things, but they're trying to use both air power and ground uh, artillery and tank units and infantry, of course, uh, in combination. And that's how they're going to be working that. You know, we've talked a lot about these tunnels and that complex system that is underneath Gaza that Hamas uses for its military purposes. I mean, what does that tell you about what these ground forces, those troops that you just saw going into Gaza, what they are going to be dealing with in the coming days? Think of narrow, confined spaces all over the place. We have basically about 300 miles of tunnels in these areas, really concentrated here in the north. We have a lot of uh, the main effort of tunnels. We also have some right here in the south in the area around Khan Yunus. Uh, each of these tunnels, uh, some of them are very narrow, some of them are a bit wider. Uh, the entrances are all over the place. And what the uh, uh, Hamas fighters are doing is they're using these to uh, pop up and cause ambush, uh, initiate ambushes and uh, place uh, in place IEDs and do things like that. So what they're doing is they're using these tunnels to great effect. But what the Israelis are trying to do is they're trying to in essence, cut each of these tunnels as best they can to prevent as many of these Hamas fighters from utilizing the tunnels like they have in the past. Colonel Cedric Layton, thank you for laying all of that out for us. You bet. 
Up next, you're going to hear directly from indicted, indicted Congressman George Santos. He's speaking exclusively with CNN tonight, explaining why he told all of those lies about his biography. He's defiant, though. He's not stepping away from his job. He's actually vowing to run again, he says, no matter what. So they expel you, and then they put someone else in the seat. You're going to run in 2024. Absolutely. Uh -huh. Can you win a primary, given all these yes. things that are lined up against you? I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. George Santos is facing 23 federal charges, including identity theft, wire fraud, and money laundering. He's also under investigation by the House Ethics Committee. And yet the indicted Republican congressman from New York says that he is still going to run for his seat in 2024, even if he's been expelled from Congress. He also told my colleague, Mane Raju, that he believes he could win. So if they expel you and then they put someone else in the seat, you're going to run in 2024. Absolutely. Uh -huh. Can you win a primary, given all these yes. things that are lined up against you? Yes. In the general election. This is a, a Biden-leaning district could, and you have all these issues against you. Could I have won the general election last time? Nobody said I could, but I surprised. It was a different situation. No, no, I understand, but elections are tricky. There, there's no predetermined outcome. Of course... Litany of Lies is now attached to George Santos's name, ranging from alleged criminal schemes to made-up claims about his background. He's not Jewish. His grandparents were not Holocaust survivors. His mother was not at the World Trade Center on 9-11. And he also did not attend the Baruch College or play on its volleyball team. The list really does go on. Because your voters thought they were electing Manu, one person. Nobody and that elected wasn't true. me. Nobody elected me because I played volleyball or not. Nobody elected me because I graduated college or not. People elected me because I said I'd come here to fight the swamp. Nobody knew my biography. Nobody opened my biography who voted for me in the campaign. That may be his perspective, but look at what the voters in the real world are saying about this. Earlier this year, 78% of voters in George Santos's district said that he should resign. That includes 71% of Republicans. And while Santos did survive an effort to expel him from the House just this week, he may not be so fortunate once the Ethics Committee is releasing its findings, which it's set to do in just a matter of weeks. Joining me now here in the real world is my colleague, John Avalon. John, I mean, it's hard to know kind of where to start with this when you look at the charges that he's facing, yet the defiance that he's displaying in that interview with Manu. Well, I think he learned it from Donald Trump. I, I mean, you know, the defiance on the on top of the denial and the lies. I think this is a case of what former New York Senator Daniel Moynihan said was defining deviancy down. Um, the fact that he's gonna he thinks he can win a primary and win a general when those poll those poll numbers out of his own district show that the voters want him gone when his congressional colleagues from New York Republican Party want him gone. Um, that's just about shamelessness. That's just about you know, the, the shamelessness that Donald Trump has turned into a superpower politically, except in the figure of George Santos, it seems as absurd and pathetic as it really is. 
But he says, you know, no one elected him because he lied about playing on the yeah. college volleyball team, which is, I mean, sure, I doubt that's something that a voter had in mind. Probably not. When they went to the polls that election day. But, but voters typically, when you look at the past, they don't like serial liars as their, their representative in Congress. And as Manu rightly pointed out, this is a Biden-leaning district. There are a bevy of people lining up to try to primary him. I mean, what do you think the voters how they are viewing that kind of shamelessness, as you put it, in his answers there. I think they view him with contempt. He's a punchline. He, he's a self-inflicted joke, but he's a joke on them. And that's what I think people are not likely to uh, forgive. You know, it wasn't known that, you know, there's no, there's no Brook volleyball contingent that voted for him last time in the district. But people did think that he'd gone to Goldman Sachs. They did think he was a successful businessman. Um, and then but the, the insulting aspects of the lying about his heritage and the Holocaust and his mother being the Trade Center 9-11, that's something this district takes very personally, and it should. Um, but the people who know you the best, his congressional colleagues from New York, hate you the most, you got a problem. And that's because he makes them look bad. He's a stain on them. And it's an issue for the New York Republican Party right now uh, because they, they elevated this guy not once but twice. I don't know that they'll do it a third time. But again, that, that you know, he, he, he talked his way into Congress. So I guess he thinks he's got nothing to lose. We'll see what happens when the Ethics Committee report comes out. Do you think that Ethics Committee report will, I mean, sometimes it's treated, maybe a lot of the time, it's treated as a joke on Capitol Hill. People don't take it seriously, don't feel like it really has a lot of teeth. Do you think it's different for George Santos, though? I do, because I think the, the details will be damning. Uh, we obviously have the allegations. We have the indictments. Those details are pretty damning, and they go well beyond the lies he told in the campaign, but into alleged financial impropriety. But I think it's the, it's the, that's part of the due process um, that folks who said, look, you know, I think he's a lousy guy and should resign, but we shouldn't kick him out because process matters. And part of that process is the Ethics Committee. The last two members of Congress who were kicked out, uh, most recently Jim Traficant of Youngstown, Ohio, uh, 20 years ago, was bribery. Um, you know, this, this is something different. This is something we haven't quite seen before. Uh, but I do think the Ethics Committee report could be determinative. We'll yeah, see. I mean, his charges are conspiracy, wire fraud, false statements, falsification of records. The list goes on. What do you John got? Avalon. With all that, thank you very much. And of course, Take you can account. watch all of Manu's full interview with George Santos. It's going to air on Inside Politics this Sunday, 11 a.m. I promise you're going to want to see it. Meanwhile, tonight, President Biden, he was in Lewiston, Maine, comforting the grieving families and the first responders after last week's mass shootings that killed 18 people. He reiterated his call for action on gun violence. We'll tell you what he said on the ground next. Today, President Biden was on the ground in Lewiston, Maine, a community that is still in shock and mourning, where he issued a call for action on gun violence. This is about common sense, reasonable, responsible measures to protect our children, our families, our communities. Because regardless of our politics, this is about protecting our freedom to go to a bowling alley, a restaurant, school, church, without being shot and killed. The president was honoring the 18 people who were killed in last week's massacre. He spoke at one of the two shooting sites that were there. He met with first responders, nurses, the families of those 18 victims. He even walked hand in hand at one point with the governor of Maine, Janet Mills. Earlier, the president and first lady stood for a moment of silence at that second shooting location. 
CNN's Omar Jimenez is on the ground in Lewiston covering the president's visit. Omar, I was just thinking about how many times we've seen this president, but, but really multiple presidents in this setting at the scene of a, of a mass shooting. I mean, you think about Uvalde, Monterey Park, Buffalo, Atlanta. Now another one is on the list of places that President Biden has gone. Omar, given what he mentioned today, is there any discussion happening there about changing the gun laws in Maine? Yeah, I mean, he and those are all places that President Biden listed over the course of his his brief remarks here as well. And yeah, there have been conversations, especially at the state level. Maine's governor, uh, Janet Mills, has talked about how in the recent in the coming weeks, she wants to bring together legislative leaders, public safety officials, those in the medical field as well to have a, quote, robust conversation on gun violence because she believes action is needed. And part of the scrutiny here is around Maine's so-called yellow flag laws, which essentially essentially uh, says that law enforcement can't take someone's weapons without a court order or the input of a medical professional that says someone is an extreme risk to themselves or others. That said, over the months leading up to these shootings, we know that there were multiple occasions where concerns were reported to law enforcement about this shooter's mental health, including a soldier reporting that they had concerns that the shooter, in this case an army reservist, uh, would, quote, snap and commit a mass shooting, including the shooter's family reporting to law enforcement they were concerned about his well-being and that he had access to firearms. So it's part of why Maine's governor announced they would be forming a commission to investigate law enforcement's handling of some of those mental health concerns and whether more should have been done. Yeah, a lot of questions for those families that need answers here. Omar Jimenez, thank you. As the country is still reeling from that mass shooting in Maine, the president said today he does still believe consensus is possible. In fact, one measure that his administration has backed is that Trump-era ban on bump stocks. But today, the Supreme Court said that they have agreed to reconsider overturning that federal ban. Bump stocks are these attachments that go on semi-automatic rifles. They essentially allow shooters to fire hundreds of bullets in just mere minutes. They were banned under former President Trump. He had ordered a review of the device after it was used in the Las Vegas shooting in 2017. That massacre was the deadliest in American history, killing some 60 people and wounding hundreds more. The gunman's rifle, amplified by a bump stock. Up next, we're going to talk about a story that's really important. People who were thrown in jail simply for doing their jobs. I'll explain right after this. An important story about a small town before we go tonight. The publisher of an Alabama newspaper and one of her reporters have been arrested simply for doing their jobs. Sherry Ann Digman and Don Fletcher of the Atmore News were taken into custody last week. The district attorney filing felony charges following the paper's October 25th article investigating the use of COVID relief funds within the school district, accusing them of publishing evidence from a grand jury investigation in that article. Press advocates are pushing back, and rightfully so. One prominent First Amendment advocate spoke to the New York Times, and I'm quoting now, saying if the Nixon administration couldn't imprison journalists who printed the Pentagon Papers, the Alabama DA can't imprison journalists for writing stories about the Atmore, Alabama School Board. I should note that in 2001, the Supreme Court reaffirmed, if the information is truthful and newsworthy, news organizations have a constitutionally protected right to publish it. Of course, it may happen be happening in a small town. It is certainly of great importance. I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight and every night this week. CNN News Night with Abby Phillips starts right now.
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.